if there's any subject that men, especially in our society, don't like to talk about, it's feelings. I reminded of a sitcom one time where someone, the man of the house said, I hate emotions. I hate all emotions. That's most of us guys. We don't like talking about emotions, feelings all that much. And a lot of us don't like talking about the subject of crying. Because we think if, if we're crying, it's a sign of weakness. But we know that it is not. We know it's simply a God-given reaction to several things. To pain sometimes. Sometimes to specific emotions that strike our emotions in a certain way and bring us to tears. Sometimes we laugh until we cry. Sometimes sadness hits us until we cry. Sometimes we're so frustrated or angry that it brings us to tears. Crying is not a sign of weakness. We know that if nothing else because John chapter 11 and verse 35 tells us that Jesus Himself wept. He cried. Hebrews would tell us that Jesus cried vehement cries. Charles Dickens, in his book, Great Expectations, had one of his characters say this, Heaven knows we need never be ashamed of our tears, for they are rain upon the blinding dust of the earth, overlying our hard hearts. I was better after I cried than before, more sorry, more aware of my own ingratitude, more gentle. In the book, Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote, Do not apologize for crying. Without this emotion, we are only robots. Now, she may be exaggerating there just a little bit. There's more separating us from robots than just the ability to shed tears, but I think we get the point that she was trying to say. And I think all of us would also agree with the fact that part of this depends on what it is that brings us to tears. In fact, to bring it out a little more, all of our emotions need to be governed by the will of God. What I mean by that is, All emotions are given to us by God, but part of our work as Christians is to make sure that certain things strike us emotionally in the way they would strike God emotionally. Such as, what is it that brings excitement to my soul? What is it that brings joy to me? Those should be the same things that would bring joy to the heart of God. What is it that brings anger into my life? They should be the same types of things that make God angry. Blaspheming His name, sin in this world, and other things. And the same is true with the emotion of sadness, even that brings us to tears. What are the things that grieve us in that way? They should be the same types of things that would grieve the very heart of God. What I want to do this morning is use that text we read a few minutes ago from Mark chapter 14 to remind us of that particular account in the life of Peter. And remind us that weeping is something that all of us will do, but in sort of an ominous way as far as the title goes, I want to remind us that it's better if we weep now. And if this thing doesn't work, I'm going to be weeping really strongly here. Here we go. In just a few moments. But it's better if we weep now. And that may seem like an ominous title, and you'll see why we're going there in just a few moments. But I want us to think about the crying that Peter did in the moment. Then I want us to see what that led him to, and then let that... Show us what a difference it should make in our lives. So turn with me to Mark chapter 14, the last several verses that Dylan read a few minutes ago together with us. And I want us to think in the first place about Peter's weeping. Peter's weeping. We know the scene, the one that's found there in Mark 14 and paralleled in several of the gospel accounts. Three times Peter denies Jesus Christ. Now some of that, we can almost, I don't want to say excuse away, because we should, he should not have done it. 
But try as best you can to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Besides just the fact he denied Jesus, think about everything else he had been through leading up to this. Peter, as well as the others who were there, had to be exhausted. They had been through, yes, they had slept in the garden, but they hadn't slept well. And they hadn't slept all night. They had slept for a few moments. They had been through all of these, the week leading up to what would become the crucifixion. Now the stress and the strain of what's going on is pressing down upon them. We can, in a human way, understand the, the strain that Peter was under in the moment. But three times as the night presses on, he, he denies even having any connection with Jesus Christ. It's interesting that you'll recall Jesus had said that this would happen. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus told him, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then Jesus said, and when you have returned or when you turn again, strengthen the brethren. What's implied in Jesus' statement there? Peter, I've prayed for you, but I'm telling you, you're going to fail. When you have turned again, strengthen the brethren. And Jesus had told Peter explicitly, before the rooster crows, as Mark records it, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you know me. If you think about that account in Luke, it's interesting Peter's response. And I want you to file it away because of something we'll say late in this lesson. In Luke 22 and verse 33, Peter's response was, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. File that little response away. And that's when Jesus would say, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And now as Jesus is going through that night of kangaroo courts, the the night of all these farcical trials, all the pressures are weighing down upon Peter. And what's intriguing about this particular account to me is that Peter does not deny anything huge, if you will. All that's ever said is, you are with him. or, Or you know him. Just a connection. And Peter denies even that. Peter denies even knowing Jesus or even having some earthly connection to Jesus. We know you were with him because you're a Galilean. One of the gospel accounts even tells us that your speech, your accent, we might say, is giving you away. And Peter denies even that. Not that, his, not that he was from there, but that that meant he was connected to Jesus Christ. But it's nothing huge, if you will, that Peter is denying. He's denying any connection whatsoever. That's all it takes for him to deny in the moment. Peter had said, I'll go with you even to prison and to death. Notice what he implied there. His strength was in himself. I'll go with you, Jesus, even to prison, even to death. But as Solomon we remind us and repeated in the New Testament, pride goes before a fall. In the moment, Peter's strength, as he thought, was only in himself. Three times, he's accused of nothing more than knowing or being connected with Jesus. And each time he makes one of those denials, we as we read the story and try to picture it in our mind, we can almost feel the tension growing. Do you ever find yourself reading this, this account in Scripture and saying, Peter, don't do it! Do you, do you find yourself doing that even though you know the outcome? And the second time, do you find yourself going, maybe this time when I read it, he'll say something different. But he just continues to deny. To the point that the third time he denies Jesus, we're told that he invokes a curse. He swears. He, he is upping the ante, if it, as it were, in his denial. And then, Mark 17, 40, excuse me, 14, 72, 
brings Jesus' words to the minds of Peter as that rooster crows. And before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Mark records for us as that chapter ends in one line, and he, that is Peter, broke down and wept. The King James Version translates it, he thought thereon and wept. Here's the reason you have such varying translations. Thought thereon and broke down. You don't have to turn to these passages, but I want to show you two other places where this same word is found. This same word is found in Mark chapter 4, verse 37, where the disciples are on the boat, and it's used there to describe the waves beating against the side of the boat. It's the same word translated here as broke down or thought thereon. It's also the same word found in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 50 that describes the way in which the soldiers seized or took Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the same word here as broke down or thought upon. What was Mark trying to tell us? You can get it in your mind this way. When the rooster crowed and Peter made this realization, what Mark is trying to tell us was his very own conscience was beating him up on the inside. That's exactly what Mark is trying to tell us. That's why you have thought thereon, King James, he placed his mind on it, and you have broke down, English Standard Version. His conscience was absolutely destroyed in the moment by the realization. And so he wept. Literally, he bewailed. Some would suggest you could translate the word he lamented. But that may not be strong enough because we sometimes think of that as just going away and doing some sort of inner crying. The word is an outward cry. He was wailing in the moment. Peter came to a very strong, very emotional realization. His conscience had seized him by the pain of what was going on and the realization of what he had done. He was bewailing the fact that he had denied Jesus throughout the night. Now here's something to keep in mind that's going to lead us into our second thought in a moment. This could have, this could have made no long-term difference. You ever known someone who wailed and bewailed a moment and wept in a moment just because they got caught? And it made no difference whatsoever in the long term? Peter could have been destroyed in the moment simply because he got caught. Even by his own conscience, he got caught. But thankfully, if you flip forward in your Bible, to the very last chapter of the Gospel of John, you see something in the second place about Peter's willingness. John chapter 21. Will, you're going to advance this for me, please. I appreciate that. Weeping can lead us to be sorry we got caught, or it can lead us to real change. What matters is the heart of the person going through the experience. Am I really willing to follow the Lord and to use this moment to change, or am I just sorry I got caught? The foundational principle is 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Why would Paul write that in 2 Corinthians 7? Because godly grief, godly sorrow, grieves not because I got caught or not just because I got caught, and not just because I might have hurt someone else. 
Godly grief brings about change. It brings about repentance because I realize I have hurt the heart of God. And I don't want to do that again. Worldly grief brings about death because I'm just sorry I got caught. And eventually I'll go back into it or I'll choose something else to do. Eventually I'll go back to living the way I want to live and I'll bring eternal death upon my soul. Peter was not perfect. And even after his moment of weeping, he wasn't perfect. He was human, but his heart was in the right place. And that comes out in John chapter 21. His weeping was awful, but it was from a heart that wanted to do what was right. John chapter 21, of course, begins by reminding us that Jesus is risen, but all of this is, is overwhelming to the, to the apostles, as we can only imagine. In fact, to the point that Peter says, I, I'm going fishing. He and some of the others are just going back to what they knew. They're going to go back to something that was familiar because nothing the last few days had been familiar to them. Nothing had been normal. At least, let's at least go fishing. We, we know something normal about that. And Jesus appears walking on the side of the sea. John chapter 21 and verse 7, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And don't you love Peter's reaction? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment because he was stripped for work. And I love that it doesn't say he dove into the sea or he put his little toe in to make sure the water was warm enough. He threw himself into the water. He was going to get to the shore no matter what it took. This was more than just excitement. This was hope. This was a rekindled hope within Peter that this really is Jesus walking on the shore. And then you have that famous conversation, the, the verses you have referenced on the screens. John 21, 15 through 19, where th three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? The first two times using the word agape, that self-sacrificial, other-centered love. The third time saying phileo, that deep friendship love. But all three times you can translate the word as our English word, love. Peter, do you love me? Peter's responses are interesting. They're all the same except the third one. He says in response, you know that I love you. He says in response, you know that I love you. And then when he's grieved that Jesus would ask a third time, do you love me? Peter adds a beginning statement. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus then reveals to Peter. Peter. Remember what you said in the book of Luke. What? That's not what he said. Oh, but do you remember what I told you to file away? I'm ready to go with you where? Even to prison and to death. Why would Jesus then take the opportunity here in verses 18 and 19 to state to Peter in a prophetic way that he was going to die for the faith? Do you remember that in this same conversation, after that's been said, after that little part of the conversation has been done, that Peter looks at Jesus, and you can almost in your mind see him looking over his shoulder and pointing to John and basically saying, what, what about him? And Jesus calls Peter back and says, don't, don't worry about him, you worry about you. But just in that little exchange, you see something about the heart of Peter. Peter is for the first time, read through the four accounts of the Gospel, 
Whenever Peter speaks before this, it's always I, me, we, and us. For the first time, Peter says, what about him? His mind is not on himself only or himself first. And Jesus sees that in Peter. That's why he's able to tell him, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs or feed my lambs. Peter's statement of self-assurance back, I'll go with you to prison and to death, now has a real foundation. Because the foundation is not on Peter himself. The foundation is on the realization that Jesus is Lord. What an amazing change. Here was a man whose heart was broken and who wept But because his heart was one that was willing to do what God would have him to do, it led to an amazing moment in his life. Do you not see that other times in Scripture? Think about the prophet Jeremiah. Scholars give him the nickname, the weeping prophet. He wrote a book called Lamentations. You read his entire life, and you never once see a record of him if you will, converting someone to God or bringing someone back to be faithful to God. And yet when he weeps over the city of Jerusalem and over the sins of the people, it leads him to remain faithful in a moment where he could have been destroyed for not having someone come back to the Lord. Think about David. Was David perfect? No. And you think about the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah and all those things recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11 leading into chapter 12 where Nathan comes and says, you are the man. And in the Aftermath of that, David pens one of his most famous psalms, Psalm 51. And it's in the midst of that psalm he he wrote words that we still sing. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. And was David perfect beyond that? No. But if you read his life account very carefully, following those moments of weeping, he had a great moment of faith. He had a great period of his life of following God, remembering why He was on the throne. It wasn't because of His own power. It was because of the power of God. And even in the life of Jesus Christ, when you see Jesus weeping in John chapter 11, that's the chapter where He raises Lazarus. And it's that miracle, the raising of Lazarus, that the Jewish leaders can't get around. You recall that they even say, let's kill Lazarus. If we can't get to Jesus, let's kill the proof. Now all of Jesus' miracles were amazing. I understand that. But the moment after he weeps is when he performs the miracle that they could not dispute. Here were times where people went through various things. Jeremiah trying to remain faithful. David in a moment of being unfaithful. Jesus in a moment of trying to show trust in God in a moment of loss. And all three of them weep in the moment and it leads to great times in their life. Great moments of spiritual maturity in their life. And here is Peter, weeping over a series of sinful decisions, but it led him to a heart willing to serve the Lord for the rest of his life, despite persecution, despite his former selfish ways. He was willing. But here's the question. What in the world does that have to do with us? And where in the world did I possibly get the title that it's better to weep now? It's because of number three, Christ's warning. I want you to turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 25. It's a passage most of us know very well. Starting in verse 14, running through verse 30 of that chapter, Jesus speaks the parable that we call the parable of the talents. 
We won't take the time to read the whole parable, but you remember the basic structure of it. There's a master who's going on a long journey. And he calls three of his servants together. And he gives them business to manage, money to manage while he's gone. And Jesus even puts in the parable that he gave to each one, the old King James has, according to his several ability. Each one had a certain amount of ability and opportunity, a certain amount of business acumen, if you will. And the master understood that. To one, he gave five talents. To one he gave two, and to one he gave one. Each according to their ability. And then the master left. He went away. And you remember what happens. The man who had five used that business knowledge, and when the master returned, said, you gave me five, here's five more. We don't know what he did, but he whatever he did worked very well in a business way. He doubled the money. He doubled the talent. The, the man who was given two did exactly the same thing. You gave me two. Whatever I went through as far as the business works go, we're not told. But he took the two, made two more, presented to the master. And the one who had one, he came with a really good speech and had a good shovel. That's all he did. He spent the time the master was away thinking up an excuse speech and digging a hole in the ground and putting his talent away. But what's interesting to me, and the point I want to make for us this morning, is the little speech the man gives. Notice verse 24, where the, the unfaithful servant gives part of his speech. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. Now, most of us have heard that and we don't think that much about it. Have you ever thought about this? The master never disagrees with him. You knew that I was a hard man and going through all the same thing. What's the point Jesus is trying to make? Think about the other two stewards or servants in the parable. They also knew the same thing about this master. They also knew that he was a difficult master at times. In other words, all three of these servants, the five-talent man, the two-talent man, the one-talent man, all of them probably had days of service under this master that were not easy, where their work was hard, and maybe even where they wept because they were working for this guy. But for sure, they had days where it was not easy to be a servant of this master. The master never disagrees with that little detail. But what does he tell the servant? Your job was just to be faithful. It was just to keep on working. Even when days were difficult. Even when times may have left you weeping. And so what's the punishment? Verses 29 and 30. For to everyone who has, will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is the point Jesus is trying to make? Is He trying to tell us that you become a Christian, you become a disciple of Christ, and everything's going to be wonderful every day of your life. Folks, that's not consistent with anything else Jesus said or the other New Testament writers said. Is He trying to say that you become a Christian and all of a sudden all the roadblocks in life are taken out of the way? No. What He is trying to tell us is there are going to be days, even when we are faithful, where we will weep. There are going to be days when things are difficult. There are going to be roadblocks. There are going to be things that keep us from having just waltzing through life and everything being fine. But our work is to be faithful even if it means weeping now so we don't 
weep then. That's what he's trying to tell us. It's a whole lot better to have our conscience hurt now and to use those moments of weeping to become more faithful to the Lord, to learn from those things, to draw closer to Him through moments where life is not what we would like it to be, to avoid being in a place where the weeping never ends. That's the point. And that's why it's better to weep now. Jesus would make it as clear as day in just two lines from Luke chapter 6. Verse 21 of that chapter, He would say, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then the opposite in Luke 6.25, He said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In other words, it is better to weep now. In this life, there are going to be times where we shed tears. If our heart is trying to be like the heart of God, there'll be reasons for those tears that that are fine. Sometimes they're because we sin and we're grieved because of our sin and we want to grow in more faithfulness. Sometimes it's because we see the sin of others, the sin of the world, and it grieves us because we want the world to know the sin, the, the, the love of God and to come out of that sin. And we want to do what we can to help with that. Sometimes it's because we are trying so hard to do what God would have us to do and the world just frustrates us and tries to push us down and we cry because we want to do the best we can do and we're fighting as much as we can fight and we're just tired of fighting. I want to remind you of something written 3,000 years ago that should speak to us every day and remind us that it's better to weep now. It's Psalm 30. It was written for the dedication of the temple. What's interesting though is David wrote Psalm 30 and he didn't get to be there for the dedication of the temple. But he wrote a a poem, a psalm, preparing for that dedication of the temple. He turned a time that had to be hard on him. "I I want to build this, but I can't. And he turned it into words that are powerful and moving. And listen to what he said in Psalm 30, starting in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, For you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, the grave. You restored me to life among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. And here's the line you know. Weeping may tarry for the night but joy comes in the morning. 3,000 years ago, David understood, I'm going to cry in this life at times. Weeping may be here in the night. But 3,000 years ago, David understood, there is a joy that is coming. Friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, It's better to weep now. And to use that to draw closer to the heart of God than to spend eternity in a place where the weeping never ends. Because you see, you and I are looking for a place where there is no more mourning. There is no more crying. And you have that beautiful picture that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
That's what we long for. That's what we want for everyone in this room. But it only comes to the one who is faithful to God. One who has been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and who's walking faithfully every day. What is in this life that maybe you're weeping about? Maybe it's something you need to be forgiven of and you want us to pray with you. Maybe you've never become a Christian and now you realize it as, as a grief that needs to come to bring about that repentance that will lead to salvation and the joy that comes with it. If you're not a Christian this morning, or if you're not a faithful Christian this morning, remember it's better to weep now and make your life right. Allow God to make your life right by responding to His invitation as we stand and sing to encourage you.